Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. All right, all right, all right. Welcome to another episode of Industry Standard. It's me, uh, Barry Katz. Uh, I have a great, great show today that's in a different kind of lane than I normally do uh, with a a man named Campbell McLaren. But before I start that, I want to share again with the audience how amazing it is to hear from you and the things that you've written to me. And I thought it'd kind of be fun if I read you a few of the kind of things that I'm privy to. Some of these people don't even leave their names. They just leave a letter or they don't do it anonymously. That's humbling sometimes, uh, some of the things people have said. Um, This is somebody somebody wrote uh, that I I was really happy about. Barry Industry Standard is an exceptionally entertaining and insightful podcast. It provides a one-of-a-kind access and perspective on the business of show business and features candid interviews that feel more like sitting in on a private conversation with some of the biggest players in Hollywood. Uh, You just aren't going to hear those stories anywhere else. And let's not forget your voice. I smile every time you talk. This podcast is a perfect example of why podcasting is such a transformative medium. I will highly recommend this to anybody in comedy or showbiz geeks. That was Harrison. Um, And here's one that was, uh, you know, people use things that I say and uh, it's kind of weird when you hear it. It's like one guy wrote 100% undeniable man. 
No Biting Man, which is something I said on Jay Moore's podcast, a story about how he came to my house with his little baby, and my dogs were, like, jumping him and barking at him with the baby, and he's just standing there calm, and I just yell to the dogs, No Biting Man! And that's something that somebody keeps it. But um, one of the things that somebody wrote, which is, again, uh, no name here, but uh, surprisingly great. I thought your monotone voice would put me to sleep faster than a Xanax and a whiskey smoothie. (laughs) But I was completely wrong. Your insight into show business is very interesting, and your first podcast with Doug Herzog was already better than 99% of the podcast out there. With every single comedian and their friend's uncle having their own podcast nowadays, this is a new perspective into business. And Barry, it's a must-listen in my humble opinion. So that's really cool. Um, Thank you guys for writing all that wonderful stuff. And uh, now what I normally do here is do a cold open that sort of uh, shares sort of something uh, in common in some way with the person who is my guest. And so there was a huge boom in the comedy scene. And I was in Boston at the time uh, during that boom from 1980 to around, you know, 1990. And it was massive. And I started going to New York and trying to feel out the situation there because I really wanted to move there in the late 80s and do what I I wanted to do. And so one of the things that I don't know if I've shared with you people uh, in the audience in the past is that, well, one of the things you may know about me is that uh, I was married uh, when I was 26 and my wife passed away uh, after eight months and I was doing all this stuff in Boston and running all these comedy clubs and trying to create this business. And I had like 50 one-nighters and comedy clubs that I was booking. And then that happened in 1986 that she passed away. And, you know, it's sort of like, you know, as your grandparents always say to you, make plans and God laughs. And so I felt like I was on top of the world. I had everything going for me. And I had a regular comedy club that I was running called Play It Again Sam's. I was helping the book places like Stitches in Boston were very prestigious. And um, working with some of the greatest comedians of my generation, like Paula Poundstone and Bobcat Goldthwait and Dennis Leary and Rosie O'Donnell was there in the beginning and um, Lenny Clark and all these wonderful people. And I think what happens when you experience a tragedy in your life or something, you know, kicks you in the gut, you, you know, everybody responds in different ways. And, and one of the things that I think I remember so vividly about it, as I had so many comedy things, after my wife passed away, I would stay up late at night and I would call comedians, not for solace, I would call them to book them on all these gigs I had. And I'd get on the phone with them, and literally it was a month after it happened, and they would just say, listen, Barry, uh, how you doing, whatever. I'm like, I'm great, but can I book you in this gig? And they're like, Barry, I really don't feel comfortable having you book me. I mean, I just want to talk. Look, this makes me feel better. So I would do these things that would immerse myself into work. But soon enough, when I went out in the world to the comedy clubs and saw the comedians... I couldn't really handle the fact that they knew the thing that had happened to me, 
that they were there at the funeral with me when I was suffering, and they they knew that part of me. And being part artist and part entrepreneur, I realized very quickly that even if Boston was as powerful a market as New York or Los Angeles, I had to leave. I had to go and, and, and build a new life somewhere else or else I just I, I wasn't going to be able to emotionally handle it. So one of the things that I had heard about, a place that I had heard about that everyone had heard about in Boston was this amazing place called Catch a Rising Star. Which, for those of you who weren't privy to this comedy club in New York, I believe it was at 79th and 1st Avenue, or somewhere around that area, um, and, which was a, a fairly uh, affluent business area in that side. And the comedy club was located in this lower area of this building. And for those of you who never got to go there, it was a long rectangular room probably uh you know a a very thin rectangle and there was a bar area up front that used to hang out in that probably was about i'm going to guess at the most 500 square feet of space and then the comedy club was a very long narrow space with a stage in the middle that probably might have held 150 people in a miracle uh crammed in there and behind the stage was a, uh, a bookcase with all sorts of books and knickknacks and things that were up there. And I decided that I would venture out and check out New York, um, sort of drive in and drive out during the early uh, um, times of my career in the late 80s to figure stuff out. But what I realized was, you know what, that's not the way to go. I either got to go all in or I don't go at all. I either got to take the risk or I don't go. I don't want to go and check it out and try to convince myself not to go or to go. And I don't want to know what it's like. I want to know what it's like when I'm there. And so I got in my car, which was a uh, 67 Camaro with the shift on the column. And I said to myself, I'm driving to New York and I'm finding an apartment today. I got in my car and I drove and I just, you know, I remembered the 70s of of Catch a Rising Star. So I got off at the 79th Street Boat Basin exit. And I got off the exit and I just drove down this street that was going across until I just noticed like a bar restaurant area at the end near or close to where Central Park was. I didn't understand east side, west side. You know, back then there was no navigation. There was no phone that could help you. Uh, There were two words that you had in your repertoire and that you had under the seat of your car, and they were called Rand McNally. You had your atlas or your map, and that's all you had, and you'd pull over on the side of the road, and you'd figure out where you were. So I stopped at this place, figuring that I'd stop here and I'd get my bearings. I get out of my car. I park at a meter. I walk into the bar. There's a payphone and a Yellow Pages book hanging from a, a chain with a cover. 
And I just said, eh, fuck it. Let me see if there's uh, real estate brokers. I look in. I find the first one. I call on the payphone. Back then, a payphone could be called back on that payphone because I didn't have a cell phone. So I ordered a Diet Coke and maybe some appetizers, and I called three real estate agents on the thing and waited for a call back. The first person that called back, I said, I'm here. Uh, I'd like to see a few places. No problem. Where are you? I told him where I was. He said, I'll be right there. The first place he showed me was a place at 82nd Street and Central Park West. It was a brownstone building. It was a third-floor apartment. It was about 500-square-foot studio with a loft at the back. It was high ceiling, so there was a ladder and like a... Uh, an area where just like a bed would fit and and a little kitchenette, whatever. And he showed me two other places, and I said, I want that first place. I said, what is it? He said, that's $935 a month. You're going to need first, last, and security. And I wrote him a check for $2,700, and I was in Manhattan. I had my own place with no furniture, but I was there, and I made the commitment and I'd done it. Before I even thought of anything, I said, I've got to do this. And so that night, I decided to um, go to Catch a Rising Star. It was a Sunday night, which was one of the best nights ever. And people knew of me, which shocked me. So people like Jerry Seinfeld and Mario Joyner and Larry Amoros and and, um, you know, Joy Behar, I believe. And, and these comics were very friendly because they knew I had some kind of a circuit there in New England. And I remember that night, and I remember Jack Cohen, who now writes for The uh, Tonight Show um, and is one of the big producers there. I remember that I was seeing all these great comics from Seinfeld to, I think it was uh, uh, Richard Lewis might have been there, Gilbert Godfrey might have been there, but Jack Cohen killed it that night, like had one of the most amazing sets I'd ever seen in my life, and blew all these other people off the stage that night. Not that the other people did poorly, but here's this guy, he has no credits at all, and he goes on and kills and I felt comfortable. It was a wonderful environment. And when I went back to Boston to get my stuff together, there was a girl that I knew that was a really cool girl. She was from uh, one of the ocean towns in New Hampshire that was a really beautiful area there. And she was a beautiful woman, and she was really interesting and cool. And I remember I'd done a gig with, I was doing comedy, and I did a gig with a guy, and she, I, I pushed him on her, and I gave her his number and all this stuff, and I called her to give him the number, and she said, you know, Barry, um, you know, I don't want his number. I want your number, and I'd like to spend more time with you. I said, well, I'm going back to New York City this weekend to get my apartment straightened out. I mean, do you feel like you might want to come with me? I never invited a girl anywhere overnight in my life. I didn't even know what the fuck I was doing, but she said yes. So I'll never forget that uh, she came out and uh, 
We had a great, great Saturday together, and I took her to that Sunday show that I thought was a great show at Catch a Rising Star. And I really didn't understand comedians. I was very naive of how they were and their different idiosyncrasies or what they were and how they were to people. But one of the things I'll always remember as long as I live is we went to the show. It was great. And after the show, we're in the lobby, and I'm standing there with Larry Amaros, Jerry Seinfeld, um, I believe it was Paul Provenza, and Mario Joyner, who was the ho- later the host of MTV Half Hour Comedy Hour. And I'm standing there with this girl. Her name was Jennifer Hightower. And she was wearing this beautiful outfit with this really short skirt and this, uh, these uh, knee highs and whatever. And we're there, and I'm listening to Jerry, and it's so fascinating. And I noticed that she's a little bit rigid. She's not really comfortable, but she doesn't know what to say or do. And I've got my arm around her. I say, are you okay? And she leans over to me, and this is when I knew that certain comedians weren't exactly what I thought they appeared to be when it came to me. She leaned over and she whispered in my ear after I said, are you okay? And she leaned over and she said, no, Barry, I'm not okay. I said, what's the matter? Are you uncomfortable being around Seinfeld or these guys? She's like, no, Barry. Mario Joyner has had his hand up my skirt for the last couple of minutes. And I don't know what to do about it. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.
You know, before I get started, I want to take a minute to let you know that I receive a lot of correspondence from companies wanting to sponsor the show, and I just, I've just avoided it since we started. You know, I always thought that it was kind of weird, and I thought that maybe people would think a certain way if I, I did that. And there was this one guy who kept reaching out to me, kept reaching out to me over and over again, persistent. His name was Michael Purcell. And finally, he traveled to L.A., and he said, you know, i got to meet you. So I met the guy, and uh, I sat down, and he told me that 10 years ago, he created a company called Global Cash Card, where he figured out a way to take payroll, make it paperless for companies of any size, and then allow somebody's weekly salary to be instantly, like, loaded anytime, anywhere onto their own personal Visa payroll card for free. So I was a little bit intrigued, so I went online, and I did some research, and I found out that it cost around $3 for every paycheck to be cut by a company. So that means if you're like a you know medium-large company, whatever, and you have a 1,000 checks you're writing every week, uh, do the math. It was like $12,000 a month you could save, or $135K a year on this global cash card. So I called the guy back and I said, well, this is something that everybody can benefit from. So I decided to sponsor him and his company. So do yourself a favor. Go to globalcashcard.com. Schedule a live demo on their system. Speak to Michael Purcell. See how easy it is for your company to start saving big money today. And trust me, you'll be glad you did. All right. Welcome back to this episode of Industry Standard. Very excited because this is a very different, unique kind of show. Uh, I, I, I have uh, a guy here, Cam McLaren, who I've known uh, my whole life uh, uh, in this business in a way, in different forms. Uh, again, uh, just for those of you who are uh, tuning in, he is a man who is uh, credited uh, with basically in the early days of, of, of coming up with the uh, idea and the creative force behind the mega hit sports franchise, the UFC. Uh, he's also a guy who uh, um, he founded a college-focused media company when nobody else was doing it called Xylo Networks, uh, which, become the, which became the nation's largest dorm room television network and launched the hugely popular website collegehumor.com. Uh, in addition, he's produced a number of different television uh, programs, including a large-scale event uh, special with Paul McCartney, uh, a tribute to Linda on VH1, and many documentaries and reality series such as BET's The Iron Ring and True TV's The Wrong Man. Uh, he created and executive produced a groundbreaking talk show, uh, the first of its kind in the U.S. It was a bilingual talk show uh, called Tonight Con Lorenzo Paro and HBO's first Hispanic comedy special entitled Comedy Salsa. He also serves as the media consultant for the Hispanic Institute in Washington, D.C., uh, that's basically a organization dedicated to empowering Hispanic Americans. He began his career as a talent director for the legendary comedy clubs Carolines and Catch a Rising Star. And presently, 
He is the CEO of Combate Americas, Inc., the first Hispanic MMA sports franchise, which concludes a reality television series for Mundos Network, which has live events and mobile programming. I know that's a long introduction, and I'm so sorry. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, Campbell McLaren. Thanks, Barry. Uh, you give the greatest intros in show business. <laughs> Having, I've been in pitch meetings with you, and you're just absolutely the best. Uh, you're also, you know, you're such a great storyteller. Uh, you know, I, 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 when I hear your voice, and I'm not looking at you when I'm just listening to the voice, um, <laughs> yeah, I remember, you remember Spalding Gray? Spalding Gray was, I'm not really sure what he was but he ended up becoming a story a professional storyteller or talker monologist i think he called himself and i did a stint with him at caroline's way back uh it was moderately successful um but he was very good and um you know did a number of hbo specials but essentially he just talked and uh the thing uh, there's a similar style in that you don't have any idea where you're going. <laughs> I really don't have any idea but where I'm going. It's really interesting. So listening to you, I'm going, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like I'm right with you. I have no idea where we're going. Like you're doing my introduction, and I was like wondering where it was going to go. But I'm right with you. Meanwhile, um, my producers are yawning as I'm talking, and you're, uh, you know, they're on their they're on their iPads. They're just looking at the news of the day. You know, no, that's uh, that's what I'm talking. I noticed them doing that. So, uh, you know, it's funny. You know, you and I, uh, we do know each other a long, long time, and we had such a similar background. Um, you know, I came from San Francisco. I was going to school, college in the Bay Area, and uh, when I moved to New York. And San Francisco and Boston, there were real similarities back Very in those similar. days, right? As a matter of fact, Boston comedians used to go to San Francisco and love it there. And, and, and people like Bobcat Goldthwait went there and became a huge star in San Francisco. And, and people came to Boston like Stephen Wright uh, became huge stars. And they were all eclectic. Absolutely. And the thing about San Francisco and Boston... Um, and, you know, no, nothing taking away from L.A. or New York at the time, but Boston and San Francisco comedians, they didn't respect New York or L.A. as comedy places. They felt New York was a place where comedians would go up and do a lot of spritzing, which is talking to the audience and shooting the shit. And they thought a lot of New York comics just stood there and did observational humor and they weren't doing as much unique original styles in L.A. as well. But in San Francisco and Boston, there were so many unique and special voices that did so much. They were characters of the game. And not to say New York and L.A. didn't have those, but I think San Francisco and Boston were more populated with those. But keep going. College no, and no, San Francisco. I, I know. That's, you know, that's interesting. You know, I, I totally agree. Uh, I would say I thought when I came to New York from San Francisco where I'd heard, you know, uh, Robin Williams, Paula Poundstone, uh, you know, uh, a uh, number of people that helped me sort of think about what I liked in comedy. When I came to New York, I thought many of the New York comics sounded like writers doing material, and I think a lot of them went on to be writers. Uh, you know, and I thought in L.A., the few times I went to see comedy in L.A., you know, in the early, early, early 80s, they were more like actors doing 
comedy. So it, I think in L.A. it was more focused on your TV presence. In New York, it might be more focused on the writing. And I found the comics from Boston, who I also love, by the way, and and San Francisco were more complete comics in a way. They had a they had an act. They had the jokes. They had an insight. And, you know, they were real performers. Um, but, you know, like you, I fell in love with Catch a Rising Star, too. I mean, that place was amazing, I think, in the history of you know, places, you know, whether it's the salons of, you know, uh, uh, 19th century Paris or Birdland for jazz or whatever, you know, Catch a Rising Star in the late 70s and early 80s was just an, uh, just a remarkable place. You remember the and Sunday what, nights. I remember the Monday nights, which were the yeah, amateur nights. And, and what was unique about uh, Catch a Rising Star as well, and we, I want to talk more about your, your, your history and your start and things, but just to share this with the audience, the thing about New York that uh, and Catch a Rising Star that was so unique and different than San Francisco or Boston or L.A. is that it was a place for all artists. So you would go see a show on any night, even Sunday night, and a artist would be introduced because there was a band, a house band on stage, like a three or four piece band. Orchestra. That was, they called themselves an orchestra, <laughs> but they were a band. And they were there every night for decades. I don't even know how people afforded them, how they did it, but I remember going there, the same people, I mean, maybe some in and out, but, but what would happen is an artist would be introduced and they would start singing. And they would do like two or three or four numbers, belt it out, and then they would get off the stage and then be applause, and then they'd introduce a comedian. And that was a, a place, and that's how, um, just so you know, one of the people that was there at the time that ended up being managed by one of the partners at, at Catch a Rising Star, Rick Newman, um, was Pat Benatar. And Pat Benatar would go on stage and do her songs, you know, like hit me with your best shot and all this kind of stuff. And then Seinfeld would go on. And, and what, it was that kind of a thing where you, it, it, which no other comedy club uh, did that. But I, I digress because I want to keep with you. So you're going to school in San Francisco. And then what happens? Um, well, you know, because uh, I want to know, like, I think what our audience loves to know, Campbell, and I'm, I'm is like. They're, everybody loves to know and understand in their hearts like when that thing is going to happen where I'm going to know what I'm going to do or what is it that or if I do know what I'm going to do how do I take the steps to get mm. where I'm going so so take me back with what you were doing before you knew that you wanted to be in the entertainment business and what happened in your life to make you say hey I'm going to go for it um <laughs> well, yeah, what a great question um, you know I always knew I wanted to be in the entertainment business because the drapery business just did not seem that interesting how could you me. always know I you mean, couldn't always know yeah, a moment that happened what happened uh, you know I, I think it's like um, you know I have uh, my professional life is mirrored by my somewhat stranger or uh, the, you know I, the way I was brought up you know I I'm an immigrant uh, from Scotland. I came over when I was nearly seven. And, you know, when I'm doing a lot of work in Spanish media now. And uh, one of the ways I really think I can connect to the uh, Spanish-speaking uh, Hispanic audiences, because, you know, an immigrant is an immigrant. You know, whether you're from 
you know, Europe or whether you're from Australia or whether you're from Mexico, the immigrant experience is a different one. You come here, your home smells different than your friends' homes. Your name is different. You know, I came from Scotland, so for those of you who don't know, they do speak English in Scotland. But, you know, I, I spoke English, but I had a weirdo accent, you know, and Campbell was not that an un, you know not that usual name uh, when I came here. So, you know, I think I've always sort of had this sort of outsider's viewpoint, and I think the immigrant experience in the U.S. is you love your home country and you love America, and there's no conflict. So I think that sort of made me realize I wasn't the same as most people. And I think if you think you're not the same as most people, the only place you're really ever going to fit in is show business, you know, because the, dra <laughs> the drapery business is just not that welcoming a business. So, I mean, I, I don't remember a point where I wanted to be in show business. I just knew it always seemed cool. All right. So what was your first move to that, that area and how did it happen? Well, you know, I, I thought I wanted to be uh, a director. And uh, a film director, a film director, you know, I didn't and what movies did you see that made you feel well, like, you know, I was a film student in, uh, you know, in college and, uh, you know, was watching all the great, whatever great means films of the 60s and 70s and foreign films. And, uh, you know, I just thought ah, this is what I want to do. And I got a job that had nothing to do with that. But I did get a job right out of college and I went to uh, work for Coca-Cola in Japan as a photographer because I'd done a lot of photography. And you know what I realized? Directors, one, they've got to have such, you know, follow through and they're detail oriented, neither of which I am. And then also there's, there's a lot of schlepping in that, you know, you got to carry a camera and I just didn't want to carry anything. So, <laughs> I, you know, I have no attention to detail and I don't like carrying things. So I crossed director off the list. And I'm sure James Cameron doesn't do that much carrying, but he, he would know what I'm talking about. You know, there's a lot of stuff. And, um, you know, for one one way, the you know, I decided to come back to, uh, you know, come to New York. I wasn't coming back to New York, but my girlfriend at the time is now my wife of 28 years. We, we came, she was from New York, so we came back. And because of my love of comedy, you know, I came to New York and I went to Catch a Rising Star. And there was also the comic strip, which was on of the- Of course, in, that no, was 81st or 82nd and yeah. 2nd yeah. Avenue. I mean, and two that's blocks where, away. That's where uh, Eddie Murphy started and um, uh, is uh, and, the, and the two owners <laughs> of the place, Bob Wax and Richie Tinkin, uh, managed him. Uh, yeah. I, it described it when I got to New York as a tomb- with a shrine to Eddie Murphy in the back. <laughs> so uh, that's how... The comic strip always looked at... You know, it's interesting <laughs> how comedy clubs are, are formulated or done. You know, my comedy club in New York, the Boston Comedy Club... Uh, comedians referred to it as a style uh, like Anne Frank's comedy attic is what they <laughs> <laughs> what they described it. Catch a rising star. Yeah. Bob Goldthwait <laughs> described this catch a rising sub job, <laughs> and the comic strip always looked like the kind of place that literally you had some construction guys from New Jersey who just started on the job trying to figure out how to cut boards together and make them into tables and chairs and areas and it's a very fascinating place well you know uh that's you do, i'll do that's a good segue to caroline's right you know so when i came to new york i love catch and i think catch and the comic strip were like 
the Red Sox and the Yankees, GM and Ford, you either were comic strip or you were catch, but you weren't both. And what amazed me is there, New York's downtown was so vibrant, the village, and Soho wasn't really Soho as we know it today, but there was no comedy club down there. So I saw an opening, and I opened a comedy club uh, called Sweeps that lasted maybe a year. Sweeps on Broom Street. I didn't think of that. And it was run by these uh, mafioso wannabes. Uh, who were laundering money. So when they, you must I guess, have fit in really well because you actually oh. look like a guy who has killed people you in know, his lifetime. I was this you know naive guy walking in. I'm from Berkeley. I go, hi, sirs. I'd like to open a comedy club. I notice you don't have a lot of business. And Tony and Bobby and Vinny and Iggy go, yeah, let us talk for a minute amongst ourselves. <laughs> and then I, don't, I think what they said is this guy looks like a total idiot. We probably can launder even more money when he's around. <laughs> And, uh, you know, Damon Wayans started there, and Rick Avilas performed there, and that's Rick how I Avi- met Caroline. Just so you know, Rick Avilas, for those of you who don't know, I spent a lot of time with him. Um, wow. Yeah, great, Rick. Great Rick, memories. Rick was a, a guy, one of the first uh, guys who, he was an Hispanic comedian, uh, the first Hispanic comedian ever to host Showtime at the Apollo he was a great actor. You might remember him as the killer in the movie Ghost. And, Unforgettable as the and killer. And he used to Ghost. have all this great signature bit where he'd talk about the different drug dealers in New York City. They got the Jewish drug dealers, and he would imitate a, Jew guy, a Jewish guy trying to sell you drugs, a Hispanic guy, a, uh, a black guy, whatever. And it was this amazing bit. You know, uh, I just remember that, you know, this Hispanic guy selling drugs. Don't give me the money, man. Don't give me the money. You just have all these interesting <laughs> things. Uh, uh, and, and, but the thing about him that I remember most of a story that, because uh, he passed away of um, what I believe were complications due to um, AIDS. Intravenous drug use. Yes. And one of the things, I, and I never understood that, and I, again, very naive, and it plays into mm-hmm. the way I went about the world. I never understood, and I later represented a, this guy, Charlie Barnett, who was the greatest street performer <laughs> of all time, who also passed away uh, of AIDS due to intravenous drug use. And one of the stories Charlie told me on his deathbed, which I was stunned about, he said, "You know, uh, you know how Rick Avilas died." I said, "No, I don't. I don't know. I just..." I he said, "He's dying. He died of the same thing I'm going to die of." And I said, "What? I mean, I never heard that. I mean, I never even seen him. I just he just passed away. That's because he kept it hidden. Nobody knew, but that's the way it was." I said, "But why? I, I never knew him as a like you tell me you did all these drugs and and IV use and whatever." He said, Barry, when I first got to town, Rick Avilas became fast friends. And this is the way our drug use went down, combined with performing. We would go to 42nd Street subway stop. We would get on the train. We would walk to opposite sides of the train. These trains were bunched together and sometimes 10, 20 trains, but there were doors that led you in the middle. I would start on one end of the train. He would start on the other end of the train on the way to Harlem. And we would perform in each car, five or five minutes or so in each car between stops. 
on our way to the middle and collect money. When we got to the middle of the train, normally it was close around Harlem. We'd get off at Harlem with our money. We'd go off into a street somewhere and we'd count all the money. We'd divide the dollar bills between us equally and we'd fist fight for the change. And whoever drew blood first got the change. And then we would go buy drugs, shoot them up together with the same needle. And uh, that was a very common practice for us. So it's fascinating. So I digress because I want to go back to what you were talking about because one of the groundbreaking things about uh, New York City, there were these characters like Mario Joyner. Jerry Seinfeld was like the ultimate... Belzer. Got Belzer. Sandra Bernhard. Sandra Bernhard. There were people that were all different personalities, and Rick and Charlie were just two of them, just like life. Comedians were a metaphor for life. You had people like Jerry that were like... Literally, Jerry could be like a lawyer, a doctor, a, you know, anything. He, he just, even if there were things in his life that were fucked up or things that happened to him in his life that were bad, you would never know it, you know, because he just went about his business in such a professional way all the time. I was always blown away by him. And then there were others that digressed from there and all the way down. Um, and so... And in the comedy club world, there were innovative people and pioneers. And yes, there were the Catch a Rising Stars that were pioneering. And yes, there was the comic strip that was great and, and all these sort of things. But there was this one woman named Caroline Hirsch that had a vision for something that you see today in hotels and, and properties all over where... There's properties that cater to the rich, the wealthy, the upscale, the people who might not even have money but want to save up for that one night where they show their partner or their date or their family a time that's just first class. And Caroline's vision from the very beginning when she had her first Caroline's on 8th Avenue and 26th Street You'd walk in there and there'd be these beautiful framed prints of comedians from New York City that looked like they were done by Annie Leibovitz. <laughs> and Eddie, Eddie were, Dahl. And, and, the and there were, you know, these tablecloths on the, you know, these white tablecloths with these candles and the dinners that she would serve and the menu. And it was like this, this first class place that had nothing to do with the comedy that of any comedy club in San Francisco, like the Holy City Zoo, which was a 50-seat place that was a little shithole, or or, Made the, the, comic or, strip or, or the other cafe, which was like part of bookstore cafe and a thing with a stage in the corner, or Play It Again Sam's in Boston that was in the basement of like a movie bar. Caroline's vision was there's people who want to have a much more upscale thing, and she would start headlining comedians and giving them a little more money than the other people gave them and treating them like they were the four seasons of comedy as opposed to the sizzler of comedy. And so go on and tell me how you got involved in Caroline's, how you met Caroline Hirsch, and what, what happened there. Well, 
you know, you 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 set the scene. I you know, I I, I can't believe there's enough digital memory to actually finish the show, Barry, because I know we're like two and a half hours in, but it's still 1983. You know, we're not, it's like, we're not getting out of the eighties, let alone now. Um, well, if you look at the way I dress, I don't get out of the eighties. So as I, Jeff Ross would say, this is my forever 41 outfit. <laughs> there you have it. Um, you know, uh, Carol, you know, yeah, you described that. You described the place very well. It was, it was beautiful. HSF, uh, which was a very famous dim sum company from the Hamptons, was doing the food. And, you know, it was a nice place. But, you know, what I think what Caroline did was her timing was literally perfect. In New York, with, with the clubs like Catch and the Comic Strip and the Improv, great clubs, you know. Well, you pick your favorite, but great clubs. And... There, but there was no place that could showcase a comedian for 45-minute sets. And with Jerry Seinfeld and Belzer and Sandra Bernhardt and Jay Leno and Howie Mandel and Sam Kinison and the kids in the hall and the headliners we brought in, it was a very unique experience for New York and I think most of the country to have literally the best comedians perform 45 minutes to an hour set that resembled an off-Broadway or even Broadway show. Jackie Mason did the club and then went on to do his Broadway show from there, as did Jay Leno, as did Pee Wee Herman. She found a way to present this um, and let people see the real power of these great comedians you know, instead of 20-minute sets at Catch where they were performing, getting ready to maybe do the Carson show or whatever, here was, to a great extent, the, the, the forerunner of all the great HBO specials, right? This was where they developed the 45 minutes that then they could take to HBO. And it was that mid-'80s, and, you know, we all think the formative period of our youth is the most golden period in the history of the world. I know everyone thinks it, whether it's music or comedy or whatever you like, but I think that really was a very special time in comedy. I mean, the, the depth of talent was remarkable. And I think what's different now, and you know much more about today than I do, but People had been building and working on their material and their act for 10 years and were all just about to be discovered. I think now comedy has become more of a factory, more of a, an assembly line where it's continual. But back then, there was sort of a backlog of people that had been working for a decade to perfect their, their art. And they were all waiting to explode in that sort of mid-'80s, early And they 90s were all waiting boom. to explode, and there was no outlets for them yeah. to explode. Because you got to understand, in the eighty, in the early eighties, HBO had uh, premiered, and you know, the person who got the first two hour specials at HBO was Buddy Hackett. Okay, so so they were, you know, the, these exactly. these these younger comics weren't getting shot. The only place for them to do a stand up set in the beginning was the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And, you know, you hope for five minutes and, 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 but that would break you and that would get you headlining and get you doing great things, but that's it. And then later Letterman started at the 1230 spot and you'd have a place to go on there and go on regularly. And he used a lot of those guys a lot and they built their cachet. Do you know what was so bizarre about that, right? David Letterman is on a network called NBC, right? A reasonably big network. They used to ask us to split the airfare with the comedians who were coming in to do the Letterman show when we were at Caroline's. And the deal was they do Letterman on Monday, 
plug the Caroline's opening. Caroline ran Tuesday to Sunday. And so they'd fly, uh, we'd fly them in and they paid the hotel. That was actually the deal. So here was this comedy club uh, underwriting the network's budgets by, you know, that's, that's kind of where the late night business was. Carson was totally different, right? He was making money for NBC forever and ever and ever. But God knows what was happening at 1230. They <laughs> needed to split the airfares with a comedy club on 26th Street. And, but, you know, it was, yeah. it was a good setup. Yeah. And, and just uh, to let you guys know in the audience, um, Caroline Hirsch, uh, I, I probably never had as great a relationship with Caroline Hirsch as I always wanted to have. Um, I had so much respect for her. She was a leader of men and women. She was a visionary. She is a visionary. And when she walked in the room, she was, you know, getting back to my, my issues with uh, how I was with women or whatever, she was unlike anybody I'd ever seen in the business world as a woman. She Sexy she, and beautiful. Just sexy, beautiful, smart. Funny. Funny. <laughs> and funny. always had a different outfit every single time you'd see her that was just Changed like. during the day. Like literally. Several outfits. Like the day. most amazing <laughs> sense of fashion and and was just such a force dealing in this world of comedy that I, you know, of the kind of artists that I was dealing with who were putting, you know, their hands up women's dresses. <laughs> she led these people. They feared her, yet revered her and respected her. And to this day, Caroline's, which then went to the seaport and now is at uh, 51st and Broadway, Still one of the most unbelievable experiences in the world and still to this day one of the most respected and incredible uh, people in the comedy business that I have ever met in my life and that I ever will meet in my life. So. But going from so you're you're doing the Caroline's thing, you're yeah, working there. Barry, do you know the story behind Caroline's first, but behind her husband, she didn't remarry. Do you do you know Neil? Do you know the story behind Neil Hirsch? Why don't you tell us the story? So, I do know the story, Neil, but I want Neil, you to say it. Neil was a, uh, I guess for a brief moment in the '80s, he was a billionaire when a billionaire meant something. So if you saw the original Wall Street, uh, Gordon Gecko's office is Neil's actual office. And Neil established something uh, that was sort of the, 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 precursor, the precursor to uh, the Bloomberg Information Network. Uh, he created something called Tellerate. And he was hugely, you know, the 103rd floor, 102nd floor of the World Trade Center, with the entire floor was his office. Uh, an incredible art collector and, a, you know, unbelievably wealthy and a real character and uh he he had a satellite that don king used for uh the boxing events and just to i'll put this in perspective so we were doing um i think it was it was jerry seinfeld was headlining and so neil had invited his pal don king and uh letterman dropped by the club and so they were hanging out at the bar and you know you know, hanging out at the bar. And so as the show was letting out, uh, Neil, Neil said to Don and David Letterman, he goes, let's go greet the people. So uh, he, they, they go and they stand outside the club 
is the door we're leading to the bar, and the patrons are coming out, and Don King's like, yeah, how you doing? Thanks for coming out. Yeah. And then David Letterman was there going, ah, yeah, ah, ah, ah. and then Neil was going, really glad to see you. And everyone coming by was going, was that Don King? Was that David Letterman? Who the fuck's that other guy? <laughs> and, you know, and that was the kind of Neil Hirsch, how Neil liked it. You had no idea why he was in the room, because he 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 didn't stand out, but he was literally one of the richest men in New York at the time. And literally, he's the first person to update the stock market since the ticker tape. He took the idea of the ticker tape and actually turned it into a modern device. So Caroline had unbelievable amount of money. Um, and the thing about her is, you know, it, great taste, great sensibility. And even though she did not need to work at all, she worked very hard in the comedy business. And I, I echo what you said. It's a... Uh, uh, you know, my, my daughter's a playwright uh, of growing note, and we, we did a reading uh, last year at, at Caroline's, and Caroline said to me uh, at one point, she goes, you know, Campbell, you've got to stop referring to this as the new club. It's been here for nearly 20 years. So, you know, that's that's kind of like my history with Caroline, that 20 years and I'm still calling it the new club. I use this expression often, but I'll just tell you this for anybody listening if there was a Mount Rushmore for comedy club entrepreneurs and owners, yeah, who'd be on it? Caroline Hirsch would be one of the faces. Who else on that? Absolutely agreed. Who else? Bud Friedman would be on that mountain. Absolutely. And um, I do believe you. I would not be. On, <laughs> I'd be. At, I'd be at the bottom of the mountain cleaning up the shit. Uh, that's <laughs> where I'd be. I would not I, uh, be on the mountain. I uh, would say, believe it or not, I would say Rick Newman uh, yeah. would be on the mountain. Big dick. Um, uh, from the Who Started, Catch a Rising yeah, Star. It, it, you know, the, the catch I knew was Rick Newman and Richard Fields. And Richard Fields is the one that took the company public and did an IPO and, and raised a lot of money. And then I'll just mention one <laughs> other person that might be uh, on the mountain only because of the environment that was created. Richard so Fields not on the mountain. Early the on. I'm sorry, go ahead. Would <laughs> probably be Mitzi Shore. Uh, Absolutely. Would probably be on the mountain. And, um, and you know, f- another person that I should share that uh, an honorable mention in, 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 in the way that uh, they are with uh, comedians Um. There's a guy that uh, that I've I, I've known my whole life and my whole career who who you know although every comedy club owner in any situation from Bud Friedman to Caroline to Richard Newman they all have had their moments with comedians. Bud Friedman told the story where he charged Jerry Seinfeld's mother to come in. You know, everybody has had the moments my mother. where they've done <laughs> where they've done certain things that have been damaging or been looked upon the wrong way. But one of the people that blows me away more than anybody else in this business is Jamie Masada, and I'll tell you why. Who owns the Laugh Factory? Because every year. At Christmas time, every comedian that works there has a gift, gets a gift. And it's the kind of gift, it's not like a keychain, it's not like a DVD, it's a significant gift, like a jacket or a 
hoodie or a you know a, a valise or a, a, a valise it sounds like I'm from the 40s <laughs> like a like a some kind of a backpack or something with the logo of the club that's a significant thoughtful amazing gift but not only that he's in a situation where he's fiercely loyal to the comedians he works with and then during times of of celebration for families like Thanksgiving and things like that, he will have a, a whole club shut down and do shows for all the homeless people and their families, and he'll serve food to all the people, and the comedians will be in line. And you can actually see the social economic trajectory of fame of the piece of people serving the food at Jamie... Masada's Thanksgiving thing. So the guy serving the turkey would be like, you know, Chris Rock, Louis C.K. or, <laughs> or, uh, or you know, or, or Dane Cook. And you get down to maybe the mashed potatoes and it might be somebody <laughs> like Daniel Tosh or Amy Schumer or somebody like that. And then go down to the gravy and you'd have somebody like J. Chris Newberg or, uh, or, or somebody like, uh, you know, who isn't as well known. And you get down to like maybe the uh, croutons or something like that or the bread and you'd have like Fraser Smith would be there as posted for a while or whatever. So you had that socio-dynamic, economic dynamic means. But Jamie Masada, he's the only guy I know who, who is community-driven, helps people, does everything, and also does great things for the comedians. And yes, everybody has their idiosyncrasies, which uh, we could be here for three hours, but... I'm gonna put him. Uh, I'm gonna put him as a fifth head on the mountain, if you don't mind. So anyway, we're gonna move on because we've been doing this stuff for a long time, and I want people to get to the good stuff. Let's so, go. Let's jump. So, a so let's jump. So let's jump a decade. So you did the Catch a Rising <laughs> Star thing. You worked there, and just take me through because Catch a Rising Star was the first club that actually franchised. You see the improvs out there, and you think, wow, there's all these improvs out there. That's pretty amazing what they're doing. But wait a second. Camel McLaren was involved not only in the Catch a Rising Star experience of comedy club expansion and franchising all over the country, but management. He also managed Larry David and Joy Behar for a time. Yeah, it's so, uh, too long a time uh, in, in some ways. You know, Barry, I got to say, I think, comedy management, maybe management in general. I think it's the hardest job in the world um, because I think you're never sure if you're the boss or if you're the employee. <laughs> you know, you really can't tell who is working I'm pretty for sure who. what I am. <laughs> I'm the guy cleaning up at the bottom of the mountain is what I am. Uh, uh, come on. But, you know, uh, I, when I was at Catch and we were expanding, my job was really to sort of develop TV shows which is what I want all, you know, it's what I wanted to do. I love the club business and God, we could sit here and talk about it for hours and, uh, and there's nine people in the world that actually care. But, uh, you know, um, there was, uh, the woman that ran, uh, the management division, Cynthia, Cynthia Coe, who dis discovered or helped discover Bill Maher and joy. And, you know, she had great, like you, she had great taste in comedy. Um, I had good taste in comedy. Um, and then she had a, a brain aneurysm. was very sad. And, uh, you know, uh, I stepped in into the management void, such as it was, and um, was working with Larry. And he was working with Jerry at the time to create legendary TV show. Uh, and, you know, it was funny with Larry. Um, and I see this, you know, his persona I, on the show. 
curb your enthusiasm. I, I always think that's the happy side of Larry. You know, like that's him in a good mood. Um, but, you know, he's clearly a genius. And, uh, you know, it was so difficult for me to 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 work as a manager because it wasn't that's not where my strengths were uh joy behar i love joy behar she's so fast she's so smart uh kevin meany was a client at the time you know it was a really illustrious uh roster and i think in life i think as you're developing your career one of the best things that you can find out is find out what you don't want to do and I realized from that short period with Larry David and Joy that I did not want to be a talent manager. And that decision has served me well in my life and career. Um, so be- take us through what moved you to uh, the part of your life where you came up with the concept the, the, of the UFC. The How did it come from comedy to fighting? You know, it's not you know it's not a weird segue at all. You know, I'd seen um, there was a company. Uh, owned by Bertelsmann, the big um, German media company called Semaphore Entertainment Group. And they had done, they did the Amnesty International rock and roll shows with Bruce Springsteen and Sting and huge shows. And, uh, you know, I left Catch and I went to them and I said, you should do a comedy version of uh, the Amnesty International thing. And we had Roseanne hosted it and Bill Maher was, you know, and it was like in Belzer. And it was a a very good show and did very well. We did it for Lifetime. And that's how I met that company. And at the time, they were doing all music pay-per-views and um, losing millions of dollars, uh, millions, when, when million meant something. And um, so they said to me, do you have any ideas that we might not lose millions of dollars on? We'd be happy to just lose thousands of dollars. And I said, I can lose you thousands of dollars. And um, <laughs> I started, and I, the first pay-per-view I did was uh, Andrew Dice Clay. And he'd been banned everywhere, uh, dropped by everyone, but he still had his fans. So when we did Dice Clay's No Apologies, you know, it it really, it rocked. Uh, and it did not lose thousands of dollars. It made a lot of money. Uh, because, you know, a comedian talking into the microphone, it's the same production values as this show here. You know, you've got a microphone and a guy. Um, very different than doing a music show. So with Andrew, that was good. And so they said, what else do you got? Um, and that's when I really started looking for unusual stuff. And um, the Gracie family, who are as legendary in the fight world as any of the comedy names we've talked about, um, were trying to figure out a way to show that Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, uh, the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu system they perfected, uh, was the top type of fighting. And they had something called the War of the Worlds, which was kind of a... I was kind of like a martial arts extravaganza. And uh, they had a guy named Art Davey who was pitching it around. And this was Art's pitch. Uh, Art and I are still very close friends. So he calls me and he goes, yeah. and if you know Joe Pesci uh, or you know the character from Lethal Weapon, that Joe Pesci, that's Art Davey, by the way. So this was his pitch. He calls me and he goes, yeah, Campbell, ah, ah, ah. HBO turned it down. Showtime turned it down. Everybody turned it down. You're my last hope. I'm like, well, that's a hell of a pitch. I mean, that, that is like, how can you not uh, follow up on that? Everybody has turned him down but me. Um, so anyway, my idea, there was a hugely popular game called Mortal Kombat out then. And as they described this, guys that would fight anyone, and um, I saw Mortal Kombat only real. <laughs> 
That's what I saw. And I thought visually it was just arresting. You know, it was just startling what we could do with it. And, you know, as I got into it, you know, it, it took about five or six months to develop it enough to really we felt we had something. But, um, you know, uh, you know, the encouragement I got from people, John Milius, uh, the, the director who directed uh, all the Conan the Barbarian movies, and he wrote Dirty Harry, and he wrote the famous line, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. You know, like the most famous guy, guy, director, writer in Hollywood. Uh, he got really involved with it, and he suggested the octagon, which is still what the UFC uses, because Conan the Barbarian fought in a stone octagon. And um, he suggested Greek columns, and I thought that was stupid. Uh, you don't say stupid to John Milius, though. You know, I, to myself, I thought that that was stupid. And I wanted something much more contemporary, and that's where the chain link fence. Originally, I was going to put razor wire around the top. Um, you know, it's funny. You, you tell the anecdote of uh, no biting dudes. No, no biting man. No biting man. So in the UFC, the UFC started with... Um, it all ties together, Kim. Yeah, exactly. So that started with the same quote because we did the first um, we did the first UFC fighters meeting, the rules meeting. This is, you know, some 20 years ago, November 12th, uh, this past November. And um, we had a rules meeting, but there were no rules. Uh, so I figured it was going to be a short meeting. But, you know, everybody was there. And uh, I said to Horian Gracie, who's the patriarch of the Gracie clan and, you know, legend. I said, you know, Horian, do you want to say anything? And I don't do accents. I can only sort of do the one that sort of sounds like Arnold and it sort of sounds like Brazilian. So, I'll, But I'll try this in my accent. So Horian stands up and he goes, we, are, we have no biting. We are not animals. We are men. There's no biting. And that was it. That's all he said. You know, and I'm like, whoa, this is going to rock because <laughs> the guy just doesn't want us to bite. Um, anyway, so, you know, I'll tell you, you know, uh, here, here's another connection between my early comedy days and then the UFC. Um, we had the world's worst announcers on the on the first one. I mean, it's uh, uh, Bill. Well, what was the first one, and who were the announcers? It was a guy named Bill Superfoot Wallace who kept burping during the live broadcast, and he kept calling it the Ultimate Fighting Challenge. He couldn't get the name right. Uh, Kathy Long, who was a woman's kickboxer, who was nice but had never done this before. Uh, uh, Jim Brown, the football player, who was good. But, you know, everybody would be talking to Jim Brown and go, yeah, that's some shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it was just, it was an odd, it was an odd team. And as and I were the combatants in the first Oh, time. my God. I mean, it was Ken Shamrock, who went on to be a UFC champion, Hoist Gracie, uh, Art Jimerson, who's still, from the first one, is still the highest ranked um, current boxer to ever do MMA. It wasn't mixed martial arts then. It was really not mixed yet but art jimerson king arthur jimerson was an eighth ranked wbf boxer you know he was a cruiserweight he was a real boxer uh gerard gordeau who came in from the netherlands and i think he was an assassin i don't know he was like the weirdest <laughs> scariest dude i'd ever seen taylor tooley the 360 pound sumo who famously has his teeth kicked out in the first 27 seconds and, uh, you know, so it was, an, it was an interesting group. But you know what we didn't have? We didn't have anyone that could actually talk on the show. And um, I'm going to offend my friend and your client, Jay Moore, and I'm going to offend my friend, 
uh, Joe Rogan and saying this. There's two comedians that really, I think, are very similar, different, but very similar. It's Joe Rogan and Jay Moore because they're both very funny, very smart, but they're tough guys. You know, they're, they could have been either one of them, I think, could have been a fighter. And I think maybe their comedy developed because they probably said stuff to annoy people and they either had to be funny or be able to fight. It's so funny you mention that because I was privy to seeing both of them starting their careers. Uh, Joe Rogan Rogan was from Boston. Joe Rogan, I saw do one of his first sets in Boston with overalls on and like... um, I don't know what it was. It must have been a hot night or whatever. But you know, you know that look sometimes when people wore overalls with, with no, no with shirt. no shirt. It was winter. And, I and, think he just liked and, showing. And the I bod. just looked at this guy's body <laughs> when he was performing, and I was like, "My God Almighty! You could circumcise a small Jewish boy off his shoulder." <laughs> it was just like this amazing power that he had, and he had this angst. And then when I first saw Jay in New York, and I started representing him. Um, one of the first things that happened was he was at the comedy club. I came down. He said, hey, some guy heckled me. I'm going to fight him. Come here. Let's come over to this side of the block. I want you to back me up. I'm like, I'm not going to back, back you up. up. I'm, I'm, I'm Jews do up. not fight. I mean, Jews do not climb and Jews do not fight. Uh, and so, uh, and he's like, no, you got to come here, back me up. And he just stood there waiting for this guy to come out and like, Jay, there's no reason we could fight. So you're right. They both had that kind of, they're tough guys and they're talkers and they talk shit. Um, and so Joe, you know, Joe worked very well in the UFC. It was a great, it was a great addition. Uh, and I'm glad to still see he's there. Uh, there's another Joe I brought in. If there's any MMA fans out there, Joe Silva, who's maybe the most famous matchmaker in the world, he was uh, my discovery as well. So it's funny. I went to the 20th anniversary and saw Arnold, uh, which was great because, you know, Arnold was funny at the beginning because he kept saying to me, yeah, this is the greatest idea. You should do this now. Why are you still even talking to me? Go, go do this <laughs> idea. And I would go, but why don't you, you know, we really could use some star power. Oh, no, Arnold is a family star. I can't get anywhere near this, but you, you should be doing this. It's uh, unbelievable. Your Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> is a combination of Arnold and the Cookie Monster from... <laughs> From Sesame Street. <laughs> that's that's the that's the best. I must uh, say, Campbell. Anyone has ever said tell, about that? I have to tell you, Campbell. Uh, <laughs> you are the worst impressionist I've ever had on the Thank show. You. It you is know. horrifying how <laughs> awful you are. But but I love you. You get the idea. I get the idea. You get the idea. It's incredible. That was uh, that was fantastic. So how you see so you create the UFC and how does you end up uh, you know in a situation where the big guy now. The big guy, the big kahuna who owns the UFC now. Lorenzo? <laughs> Dana? Mr. White. Dana yeah, White. Yeah. Dana's, How, the, Dana's the president. What right? happened? Well, He is the know, president, and the owner of the UFC is? It's the Fertitta brothers own 90%, and Dana owns 10%. Got it. So you know how, did that, how did that go from your well, hands to their hands? Yeah, you know, I was... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was Do you want a heating the, pad before I, you get in the story? I, you know, listen, you know... Here, Barry, this is like, you know this, you, you, you learned this earlier than I did. You know, if you work for somebody, you don't own anything. And when I created the UFC, you know, I worked for this Bertelsmann company. I worked for SEG. So I never owned the UFC. My wife says I'm like the guy that created the Post-it notes for 3M. <laughs> you know, everybody goes, oh, I love the Post-it notes. How much did you make from that? Um, you know, and I bought a nice house. By the way, people, that was the best impression he's done today. <laughs> I actually know the guy who created the post-it. It sounds exactly like him. Uh, so, uh, 
Yeah, so I never owned the UFC. You know, I created it. I brought in Joe Silva. I brought in Joe Rogan, helped design the Octagon, put together the, the production staff that's literally still there. You know, my, my contribution is, uh, you know, still very much apparent 20 years later. But I'm also the guy that was running around. You know, I did There Are No Rules. That was my slogan. And banned in 49 states. We had done the event. What in was the fiftieth state that it wasn't banned? No, no, no it wasn't. It's the opposite of that. We were we were legal everywhere. No, I know, but what were you? You were saying, making a statement. Why was it abandoned in fifty states? Well, like, because, what was the forty nine? Because state? everybody thought the state we were in was the ah, one. I'm, I'm sorry. Because we were in six different states at that point, including New York, and nobody ever went. Wait a minute, that's fifty five states. You know, nobody ever questioned that. We had done the event in six states, and I was still saying banned in forty nine. Got it. So how did it go? Go to the group that owns it now. Well, you know, I did the the infamous or famous New York Times interview, Death is Cheap, 1495, uh, where I said very genuinely that I didn't want anyone to die, but if it did, it would probably be good for the buy rate. And that sort of made everybody crazy. And also I put in a press release uh, um, that the fight would be stopped only with, you know, death. And, you know, which I thought was kind of, again, no one questioned me. And have you ever seen a fight continue after a guy had died? I mean, to me, that seems like common sense. When a guy dies, of course the fight would stop. How are you going to keep the fight going with a dead guy? But, you know, nobody saw. You know, this is my comedy background did not mesh well UFC with the sports writers. Weekend at Bernie's time. edition. <laughs> exactly. So when I said fight would be stopped with doctor's intervention, the referee, or death, but he just focused on the death part. And all of a sudden, you know, and I was sort of hoping to draw out uh, uh, someone to oppose us. And, you know, we had no budgets back then. There was zero budget for marketing. You know, Dana's lunch bill is bigger than the marketing budget we had back then. And that's no exaggeration. So I was hoping, like, somebody like Jerry Falwell would step up. That was sort of my plan and give us some kind of Christian denunciation and that we could rock with that because I knew I could take Jerry Falwell. <laughs> but instead, this guy named John McCain gets a B in his bonnet. John McCain... You know, war hero, POW, head of the Armed Services Committee in Congress, like one of the heaviest guys in the Senate, decides he doesn't like me so good. And, you know, that was a tough, you know, it, it, Jerry Falwell chasing you around the country, that sounds like fun to me. Senator John McCain, there was no fun in that. So, you know, I got to be kind of a hot potato at that point. And I think, you know, everyone said, you know, Campbell, maybe you need to just step away for a moment, let everything calm down. And which seemed like a good idea. I produced uh, through UFC 22. So I was still very much around, you know, when Mad Magazine did the cover story in the UFC, I am the promoter inside, you know, to be a cartoon in Mad Magazine is a rare thrill in life. But I was a promoter, uh, Marky D. Saad which I always thought was so clever. So, um, But at this point, you know, I'm taking a lower profile, and the UFC actually starts to wind down, too, because the political pressure is enormous. And the problem was, in my egotistical viewpoint, uh, without me, there was no creative spark there. If you tune... If you tone down the uh, there are no rules stuff, you need to have something else creative to go to. And what I think Dana and Lorenzo have done brilliantly is they took my 
spectacle and uh, uh, live version of Mortal Kombat, and they turned it into a world-class Olympic-style fight event where you see the greatest athletes in the world in very pure one-on-one competition, which is terrific, which I love. I still love the UFC. But uh, what I was doing is something much more of an entertainment base rather than a pure sports base. Uh, and I think that's where, you know, the UFC, to get to the next level, it had to really look at its roots and go, we want to do something that's much more pure sport. Uh, and that's what I think the guys have done incredibly well. So then, then you make Is that a, an answer? That's a great answer. And so then you make <laughs> a segue into uh, basically college programming. And this is like really before the Internet's really getting going. You create Xylo Networks, which is a thing that you're, you know, when I was in college, you'd have these networks in the dormitory that you have a channel that was your your college station. And instead of programmed to the Internet, which really wasn't worldwide uh, then as much as it is now, obviously, you thought this is my way. Uh, it was like the precursor to the Internet which led the collegehumor.com. Could you talk about that? Yeah, you know, uh, you know, I was very proud of Zylo. It, it, it was maybe a year ahead of its time, but uh, it was right there. That's how you just, the internet was starting to really explode. This is the go-go internet era when lamps.com was raising $50 million. You know, it was a ridiculous time, and Silicon Valley was like, you know, you, you went to Silicon Valley, you went to Sand Hill Road, you stayed in the Holiday Inn there, which costs more there than the Four Seasons does in L.A., and then you drove your truck to the VCs to pick up all the money they were going to give you. Uh, I mean, it was really an amazing time. And, you know, it's, if this, if there's a common thread in my comedy work and the UFC and then Zylo because it was really aimed at... It was aimed at males, you know, it was aimed at young guys, you know, to a great extent. And uh, uh, the UFC fan, you know, is 18 to 34, college educated, somewhat affluent. It's a different, you know, sort of demo than most people think. And college humor was aimed right at the college demo. And then that period when you get out of school. And uh, that's where we thought the programming sweet spot was. And we did, a, we did a lot of stuff, and it was an interesting time. And College Humor was a site we found very early. The guys were still in their dorm rooms doing it. And, you know, what was interesting about it is I think co- what College Humor did was sort of set the tone for all the humor that has come after. Like, you know, Tosh, I think, is very much influenced by the college humor thing it's to take a a reality thing whether it's a picture a video whatever it is take a real thing and then do your comedy based on your take on that thing do you remember back in the day when national lampoon would have funny road signs and you know it would be come here or you know whatever it was it was an obvious punchline if you had a twisted frame of you know a twisted viewpoint and i think that's what college humor did perfectly they were able to look at the world just from sort of that sick nasty sophomoric sort of like everybody secretly wants to masturbate in public viewpoint and uh and i think the guys you know ricky and, everybody well not me but everybody you know ricky and josh really nailed that sort of i don't want to it's not sophomoric's too easy a term 
um, they look for the real crucial points of the humor and nail it right away without a lot of buildup. So what are you doing with them at Zylo? Did you, did you purchase their Well, thing? we made the TV show. We See, did that. We turned it into a TV show called Get... It was originally called Sex, Violence, College Humor. But com. you didn't do an overall deal with them to own their site. Oh, no, we owned the site. You know, we launched the site. And, uh, you know, later on it sold to Barry Diller and IAC. You know, I think it's the and most. And, of course, another situation where when you work for a place, yeah, what you don't you own do? something. When so your you... wife took you aside again and, and said, said, okay, Schmuck, you're that's 0 for twice. 2. That's what, twice. What's the third fucking thing that you're going to ruin our lives yeah, with? Yeah, exactly. So um, um, so uh, let's keep going. Let's move on uh, to a few things here that I want to ask you about. I, I, but, but, but first, just let me thanks for you know, pointing that out. So now when my wife listens to this, she can go, even Barry thinks you're a <laughs> schmuck. He, he's your friend and he thinks you're a schmuck. So I, that, that was a I, nice touch. I do not, <laughs> I do not think you're a schmuck. I think it's, uh, you know, it's just, it's amazing how the patterns happen and how they go and, and whatever. But you came back later on and you, you did uh, the show for BET, which was really impressive called the Iron Ring which I thought the numbers were great. And you've had Reggie Hudlin on the yes, show. Yes, I right? have. He, Reggie's a genius. He's the, the guy way. who bought that when he was the president of BET, right? Yeah. And he, you know, he, you know, obviously he was president of the network, so his name is in the credits, but he was really serving as the EP on it too, you know. He's got a great vision. He loves fighting. Uh, he loves boxing. He loves MMA. Um, but I'll tell you, that show was so helpful uh, in launching my new company, Combate Americas, because I got to say, you know, maybe you feel this is true. I think you, you say the name again, because, you know, a guy like me <laughs> who has the uh, the uh, dumb Americano uh, dialect, you know, most people as a as an old co uh, comedian from uh, Boston who I started with used to say, he says, uh, you know, he says, most people uh, in the United States think that Central America is someplace in Ohio. <laughs> and so when, you, when, when I Latin say America. the word combat, mm. I say combate Americas, I think I'm saying it right. And then you say it with this. Combate Americas. Combate Americas. Oh, it's like this good. beautiful <laughs> thing. It's like It sounds like a, a combination of Spanish and French all together. I. I feel like when you say it, I just have a feeling like I, I just want to cuddle you after you say <laughs> that. It's just unbelievable. It's got that warmth to it. It's right. No, anyway. I mean, you're just trying to make up for pointing out twice I sold something. That's off, true. I, that's but what it is. Well, you know what? Here's the the name is very meaningful. I'm glad you. I'm glad uh, it caught your attention because, you know, there's a real disconnect in this country between this rapidly growing Hispanic audience, and let me tell you something. Never mind the fucking two two. 2035 uh, census or the 2050 census. Who cares? I'm, I'm going to hopefully gone from, you know, retired at that point. I don't care about that census. That means nothing when Hispanics become the majority in the U.S. Never mind that. In the year 2015, the majority of people in this country under 18 will be Hispanic. That's a year and something. From do you now, know the right? last 10 years in California? Do you know what the number one newborn male name Juan Jose Jose John or Joseph yeah so listen I don't know so, if I've got this right but the entertainment business the media business seem to be a youth business maybe I've missed that but if the number one youth demo in the country is going to be Hispanic in a year and a month shouldn't we be paying attention to that and you are paying attention I am. and, and I Campbell am. and I just so you know uh, our audience knows 
Uh, he came to me with this great idea that he had about uh, starting the first Hispanic MMA sports franchise and a reality show involved. And we got together, and I uh, we we formed this bond for the first time going out and pitching the show all across these Spanish-speaking uh, networks. You let these... me say Combate Americas in the pitch, though. You didn't try to say I that. I didn't try to say that, no. <laughs> And we'd have these meetings that were like the most amazing meetings. It's just we had a great chemistry together, and it was just incredible. And our pitch was great. And like they were these long meetings that were, you know, people were like, it almost like they were chanting our names after we got <laughs> out of there. And then things would go and go and go, and then nothing would happen. And of course, Finally, uh, Campbell gets something going uh, at Moondose. It's Dose. an NBC network. NBCU owns so, that network. So then, you know, <laughs> finally, after all the failures, he finds something that something comes to him through his agency or whatever with Moondose, and then they decide to do it, and I don't get to do anything with it. It's the most depressing thing because I don't get to work with you, but and I know that it's really <clears throat> going to be successful, and I know you're doing a great job with it. Tell us a little bit about that show before we get into the uh, the we ride off in the sunset here. Um, so, Combate Americas is uh, the first ever Hispanic uh, MMA franchise, and I don't think there's a more everybody look. Every culture loves fighting. You know, every culture, the Irish guys love fighting, right? Every country likes to think they're the tough country. Maybe not the French, but everybody else, right? Everybody else thinks they've got the toughest history and they're tough. You know, in in in, in Israel, it's Masada, you know, and now it's beating up Palestinians and the Russians are tough because everybody has to you know, fight, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Every cult, but there's no more enthusiastic fight fan than a Hispanic fight fan. If you look at Puerto Rican-Americans, Puerto Ricans, Mexican-Americans or Mexicans, they love the fighting. And yet I looked around. And I know the UFC literally inside and out. And I thought there's nothing that really is culturally connected to the Hispanic fight fan. You know, you can take the NBA and translate the announcers into Spanish, but it's still the motherfucking NBA. You haven't changed it, right? And if you take NFL, which is a, you know, an exciting sport, great lot, you know, you know, a very visual, great TV sport. But it's still very, very American. It's very American, right? And so I saw that, and much as I love the UFC, I think it is just intrinsically, you know, it's sort of SoCal, you know, goatee, shaved head guys with, you know, a metal soundtrack, or it's the thick neck guys from Nebraska that are wrestlers, college wrestlers, Olympic wrestlers. It's just, it's just hard for that to connect to a Hispanic demo. So I thought, let me bring in the best new Latin fighters. They like to stand up rather than wrestle, so it's a little more active. The soundtrack is different. Uh, I made Daddy Yankee a great reggaeton singer and a huge fight fan. He's the commissioner of the league. Um, Chino Inacho, or huge Venezuelan pop stars, hosts the show, and Piolin, the radio star, and a ton of other Spanish stars come into my show. The soundtrack is different. Now, here's a quick... Here's a quick anecdote that made me think I was on to something. So a couple years ago, I go to the UFC, and it was in Indianapolis. My mom lived there at the time, and she was very, very sick. And I went to see her. And if you, you know, if you ever had to deal with an aging parent, it's, you know, it's sad. And 
I saw the UFC was in town. I wasn't going to go, but I called Rogue and I said, you know, dude, I need a little, you know, I need a moment here. I need a break. So he said, come hang out with me. And I went and I talked to Dana and I yeah, told him, you know, I was, you know, and Dana goes, I'll cheer you up. Go sit in the trailer with the round card girls. You know, and I'm married like 28 years. I'm not going to, you know, but I went and, you know, I'm there and they're the prettiest girls you've ever seen. They're really pretty, but they're all like six foot one and they're skinny. And I remember I was thinking about Combate Americas when I was there. I go, you know what? This wouldn't work for Hispanic fight fans. They don't want these skinny girls, you know? And I think that the whole thing Combate Americas is built on is like, build it with a Spanish flavor. You know, build in its mass more. You know, give me more flavor. Give me more of what is fun about Hispanic culture. The soundtrack, the feel, the characters, the culture, everything about it. And um, it's a little more entertainment-based. Again, the UFC is the world-class fighting league. It absolutely is. No close second. Not There is no second place. It's the UFC is one, two, three, and nine. You know, it's everything. My thing, I think, is going to be very entertaining. I think you're going to see some wild fights. Uh, it's it's going to be a blast to, to watch. Whether you speak Spanish or not, because Mundos is going to have subtitles. Got it. All right. Let me ask you a few. I went into pitch mode, Mary. I'm sorry. It's fantastic. like you push the button, boom. Uh, I was mesmerized. <laughs> I, was like, uh, I was like you feel when I'm introducing you. Um, I was I was glazed over there for a second. I didn't know what happened. So okay. So uh, I want to ask you about a few choice, short, sure. sweet tidbits for our audience. Yeah. I'm going to mention a name of somebody, <laughs> and I want you to mention something quick, unique, funny, holy shit moment kind of thing. No pressure. Around somebody. Okay. Jerry Seinfeld. A perfectionist. You know, absolute perfectionist. Uh, he had, I remember when he bought, I think his first Porsche and he said that he was going to put a plaque. I, I think it was going to be the, the Richard Fields Memorial Porsche. who was <laughs> the owner of Catch a Rising Star at the time. And I thought it was funny cause that would imply that he was dead. And that, <laughs> to me, that would have been funny. <laughs> okay. Uh, Dana White. Uh, genius. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you for that incredible, <laughs> elaborative uh, thing there. Genius. Okay. Powerful. <clears throat> Powerful genius. Joy Behar. Joy. Uh, Joy. Uh, that's uh, her name. Uh, it's not exactly truth in advertising. <laughs> <laughs> she, she could have been called Misery Behar. Very funny woman. Caroline Hirsch. Uh, a genius. A beautiful genius, uh, Caroline. Um, yeah, uh, you know, brought elegance to comedy. It's not funny, but it's true. Bill Maher. <laughs> uh, uh, he looks like a vampire, doesn't he? And uh, I, I did a show. I did a show. I did the uh, Paul McCartney show with him, and he had a young Asian woman with him, a backstage who literally had her hand down the back of his pants. While he was talking to my children. <laughs> wow. So, so thanks for that, Bill. <laughs> clearly, there's a common scenario here in this podcast of comedians with hands going. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's the theme. Um, Richard Lewis. What happened? 
just what happened to Richard Lewis? What happened? Did the style change? Did he not change? He he I found him very funny in 1986. Got it. Larry David. <laughs> Uh, you know the uh, is is Larry's the most successful unhappy guy in the world. I think Richard Belzer. Uh, how was he described when Hulk Hogan broke his neck or something? Uh, um, pencil armed comedian. <sighs> to emphasize the difference in you know the giant guns on uh, Hulk Hogan the wrestler, Joe Rogan. Uh, you know, kickboxer turned comedian. Got it. Campbell McLaren. Schmuck for the two <laughs> times that he didn't own the thing. <laughs> What's your uh, proudest moment in show business and your biggest disappointment? Hmm. Um, you know, the proudest, you know, the proudest moment... But there's a, there's 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 two. The twentieth anniversary was pretty cool for the UFC, because to create something and have it be very successful is rare in life, and to create something and have it last twenty years in show business is actually pretty rare, right? I mean, TV shows don't usually last that long. So to have twenty years and it's good to you can look at your life. So that was a that was a great moment, the twentieth anniversary. But I'll tell you, I did a show when I did the Amnesty comedy show and we got nuns out of jail in china help the mothers of uh the disappeared in south america and that was a very proud moment for me the ratings were great the show got great reviews but i saw that you could actually affect change in the world through doing what we do you know doing a good job and doing something in the entertainment business can actually also be very powerful and that was yeah, that was very cool. Not Amnesty International gets people out of jail. We publicized what they did. But how often is it that comedy, you know, gets Tibetan nuns out of jail? I mean, I just that was a good moment for me. Biggest disappointment? I think you hit on those two things, Barry. I okay. mean, do we really need to go back over that? No, we won't go back <laughs> over those. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to add one more name to the people that I want you to I'll go back and edit it in. Uh, Paul McCartney. Sir Paul McCartney. To you. And to me, too, by the way. Got it. Any story from that thing of meeting him or anything that uh, <laughs> means something? Uh, you know, I've mentioned my kids a couple times in the interview, and they've been a big part, you know, of, of my life. I love, I have three kids, and uh, uh, my son's going to law school, even though. He's 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 getting ready to apply to law school. And his joke is because I kept trying to get him to do something in show business. He said he goes, I'm the only kid in the world that show business is his fallback plan. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very proud of my kids with Paul McCartney. I took them up to meet him. And this is, you know, this is a few years ago. And uh, we're getting up to meet him. And there's a whole ritual with meeting Paul. It's like meeting the head of a state. You know, he's he is a billionaire. He is Sir Paul, and he's one of the fucking Beatles. So, like, it's a big deal. So we're in this, you know, little greeting area, and I'm taking in, you know, my son, and uh, we're on the way up to him, and he turns to me, he goes, Dad, he looks like Grandma. <laughs> oh <my laughs> I was like, oh, damn. Shush, shush. <laughs> <laughs> 
I tell you something. <laughs> Jay Moore, I'll tell you something, because that was a, uh, there's moments in your life that you just always remember. And, and, and Jay Moore was uh, presenting at the Grammys, and I got to be there one year, and there was a holding area right before you go on stage. There was a very small area, like a very small area. And I remember I had a BlackBerry at the time, and I'm standing in this area, and I'm looking down, typing with my thumbs. And I had this thing at night. Sometimes I wear glasses at night, and I'd have them rest on my forehead, um, you know, as I was doing stuff on the BlackBerry because I couldn't see the BlackBerry thing with those kind of glasses on. And I'm looking down, and I see two pairs of uh, uh, two shoes come uh, next to me, like up to my both my feet. They're just standing there, but I'm not looking up, and I'm just doing my my thing. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. I heard this. That lends new meaning to the word four eyes. And I looked up, and I am one foot away from Paul McCartney's face. <laughs> and for a guy who... His first album was Meet the Beatles, played on his record player that he bought with S&H Green Stamps. <laughs> that was one of the greatest moments of my life, just letting him know, even though he would never remember it, that he was an inspiration to me. And to be and grow up in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, and, and listen to somebody from 8,000 miles away and then have them in front of you, even for a brief moment is a great experience. So lastly. I, I love that story, though, because for any of the millennials in the audience, you know, a record player is an old-fashioned music device. S&H green stamps were a form of currency, and the Beatles were a band, you know, that you probably heard of. So, Last question. What advice would you— We've got—it's only—we've got hours to go. What do you mean, last <laughs> question? Let's talk about the 80s again. I don't believe. <laughs> last question is, so— um, You've been around a lot of artists. Uh, See, you've been around comedians. You've been around musicians. See. You've been around people who were starting in the UFC. You've been around uh, digital uh, stars, starting with CollegeHumor.com and that world and Zylo. Um, you've been around uh, the Hispanic world and what it takes to break through there. And you've been an executive in all these different places. So, if you had any advice for a young executive who's starting out in this world anywhere in the world anything they're doing to get to the point where you've gotten in your career and secondly what's your advice for a young performer or artist or fighter or anybody trying to get to the next level in in something that they want to move the needle in what would your advice be um you know i'll, I'll pass along some advice that i got you know, my first real TV pitch, real meaning network TV, not cable TV, was with a guy named Alan King, right, who was sort of mentoring me. And if you don't know Alan, he was a he was a comedian and he was a producer and he was very New York based and, you know, a bit of a historian and um, came out of the uh, the Catskills and, you know, was in that tradition of Jewish New York humor, but transcended that, too, and was an actor and was sort of did everything. And we went to pitch a sitcom to CBS called Nothing Upstairs and sold it. Sold it on the first pitch. And I figured, show business is easy. You know, it's the only sitcom I've ever sold. And it didn't get picked up. But at the moment, I thought, this is easy. I'll be doing this every week. I'll be selling a sitcom. And uh, what he said to me, we were walking. We were at the Beverly Hills. He stayed at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And 
you know, we had breakfast there and I'm just taking, I'm a young guy and I'm taking all this in. And, and he goes, kid, make sure you're, you know, you got to be passionate. You, you, if you want to jump on the coffee table in the meeting, jump on the coffee table. Do whatever you're going to do, but be passionate because if you don't care, they won't care. You know, and that was so true. You know, and you heard when I talk about Combate Americas, how passionate I get. And when I launched, you know, when we, 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 when we launched Silo, we went to, we, we went everywhere in, in Silicon Valley. And there's a company called Sutter Hill, a very famous company. And we were in the boardroom. And I was pitching my little heart out because I was passionate about the idea to do a college TV network. And one of the guys puts his feet up on the boardroom table and goes to sleep. Just Z's, you know, is doing that. And I almost kicked his feet off the table and go, motherfucker, you don't want to do the deal. Don't do the deal, but don't fucking go to sleep in the middle of my pitch. I was so close to doing that because I'm fired up. Later on, I found out that was his signal to his partners that he's in. He doesn't need to hear anymore, right? So restraint is also a good thing to keep in <laughs> mind. But I'll tell you, if you're not passionate, why should anyone care about what you're trying to sell them? So that if that's, you know, that's what Alan told me. It was true then. Uh, still true. Maybe more true now. And the advice you'd have for, um, do you think that reigns, that reigns true for both artists and uh, executives? But if you want to specify it for artists, because you've seen so many go through the ranks, What's something you would uh, advice you would give to them based on what you've seen, the work ethic, and how so many of the people you saw who became huge stars would? Well, you know, you you talk about this a lot on, I think, all the podcasts, and I've heard you talk about it in the room and meetings and pitches. And it's, uh, you know, people want to be in business with people that are going to work hard to make the project and them six you know themselves a success you know the last thing anyone wants is this you know i think it's long gone the sort of you know drug related crazy out of control art and nobody wants to be in business with that anymore i think show business has become much more corporate much more buttoned down you know big companies involved a lot of money involved and so i think you've really got to take what you're doing very very seriously you can be passionate you can be funny you can be entertaining but you better be a pro and you better be ready to put in 18 hour day you know People outside of show business have no idea how hard so much of it is and how much work is involved and how few days off. When your stuff starts to go, you are busy 365 days, and that means Christmas. You know, so, I mean, you can't, you, you can't come out. It's like anything. Fighters train 8 and 10 hours a day when they don't have a fight. And when they've got a fight, they better have two six-hour training sessions and a nutritionist, and they better be focused, and they better have a game plan. That's no different for comedians. It's the same exact thing, you know. So, no, you gotta, you got to work hard. And it helps to be talented, and if you're beautiful, talented, and working hard, you got a pretty good shot. Awesome. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming by. Uh, I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, it was an honor. It's my pleasure. Honor's mine. All right, and so you've listened to another episode of Industry Standard, and if you like the show, please tell all your friends, and if you don't like the show, tell all your friends.
They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrycats.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.